This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Jason Wilde. He was on this podcast once before when we were talking about voluntary poverty. Glad to have him back. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? Hi, doing great. I'm a repeat guest now. That's a quite an honor. <laughs> yes. And uh, happy Laudato Sea Week. Happy Laudato Sea Week, which, of course, we remember the release of Pope Francis's encyclical six years ago now, right? I think so. I think that would be right. Yeah. So we remember Laudato Sea Week, and we remember his teachings and how um, they have affected our lives. We were hoping to do an episode here on Laudato Sea, and we still plan to do that. Um, and we want to tie Laudato Si into the teach- rest of the teaching of the church, because sometimes it can be seen as uh, novel or disconnected from the rest of the church teaching. And as a matter of fact, in Let Us Dream, Pope Francis said, Laudato Si is not a green encyclical. Laudato Si is a social encyclical. So it's set there against a certain background. There's been a whole series of social encyclicals. It's starting with Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum. Uh, But we realized that because Catholic social teaching is so complicated and also so misunderstood, that we should probably do an introductory episode on Catholic social teaching. So we'll probably get to Laudato Si in an episode or two here, and we probably won't run this series um, consecutively. We'll probably mix them in with our usual schedule of interviews. Uh, So we'll, we'll get going here talking about Catholic social teaching, but first... I just want to remind the listeners that we value their comments, their suggestions, even disagreements, if they have disagreements. Every podcast episode has a comment box, so let us know what you think. And in particular, if you've got questions about Laudato Si or about Catholic social teaching in general uh, that you'd like to hear addressed in future episodes, uh, please send them in. And I would like to say also that I'm not an expert by any means in Catholic social teaching. And <laughs> I don't know, um, it, it, the, the first time I actually even heard of it was about four years ago um, when we had a, a priest that gave a two-day lecture on Catholic social teaching. Um, and I'm saying that just to, to, to explain the breadth of social teaching that's out there and how it's not something that you can just get in, you know, one lecture or one 30 minute segment. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a teaching that has developed, has been developed over now, what, hundred and what are we at? 130, 140 years. I mean, it's, it's an, you know, a, a very extensive teaching. I have a book here that I've been referencing. That's the compendium of Catholic social doctrine. And it's, I haven't even got through it yet. It's, it's huge. Right. Certainly, we can't say that this is like Catholics, all of Catholic social teaching in six easy steps. You know, this isn't <laughs> what we can do because not only is it a teaching, but it has to be a way of life. Yes. It has to be a lived, and that's much more complicated even than the theory. And uh, yeah, neither of us are experts. Uh, as um, Charles said in our last podcast episode, there are no expert uh, disciples <laughs> in following the Lord. Um, and so this is a, a layman's uh, view of Catholic social teaching. Yeah. And I would like to start off with a question for you, Malcolm. I guess, have you ever been taught Catholic social teaching in your catechism? Uh, not directly, not in so many words. I mean, once I uh, 
picked up the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, and started reading through it, you can definitely find the social teachings in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But I think that oftentimes they're not highlighted as much as they could be. Right. And that's, that's interesting to me, right? It's, I mean, there's things that I can remember learning in catechism. I remember learning the Beatitudes. I remember learning the works of mercy, um, spiritual and corporal works of mercy, right? And those are, you know, those are things that are well-defined. You can go to pretty much any catechism site, any bishop's site, and you can find those things in there, right? But how often do you find really a good, solid teaching on Catholic social teaching, right? How do you find that? I guess that's where my idea was with this podcast was to just go through some of the the principles or what are those pillars of Catholic social teaching that help us and guide us in our lives, right? Right, and that's an important topic too because, yeah, that's what they are. The Catholic social teachings are the way we're supposed to live as human beings in society. I know uh, some people hear the word social and they immediately... Uh, um, default to thinking about economics or about socialism. Mm-hmm. But really, it's a lot wider than that. This is how we relate to one another. We're social beings. We all live in a social setting. And this is how we implement the gospel. Right. So, you know, Jason, you mentioned the Beatitudes that are kind of the seen as the core of um, Catholic spirituality and practice. And the Beatitudes are very closely connected to Catholic social teaching. Yeah, that I love uh, Pope Francis in his, he has an exhortation for holiness. I don't remember the name of it right now, but it was about 2018 or so he released it. He calls Beatitudes the Christian identity card. I love that that idea of the identity card. I've actually done a, a, um, a few um, retreats where I've asked people to make a resume for their Christian life, right? And <laughs> it sounds kind of funny, but it's, it's crazy how many people don't even list the Beatitudes as they're part of their Christian life. And yet it should be our identity card, right? Um, and the, it's, it's, it's actually something that um, I remember as a child hearing the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. And they sound like great ideals, right? But they don't really translate into direct action for us, I guess, right? So in in Let Us Dream, Pope Francis says that Jesus gave us this key words that summed up the kingdom of God, and it's the Beatitudes. They begin in the hope of the poor for fullness of life, for peace, fraternity, for equity, for justice, right? They are part of our being, and um, and as such, they're, they're our foundation, and that's where I like to think of the Beatitudes. That's that's where we start, right? We start with the Beatitudes, reading those, praying on those, and seeing where that leads us, right? It's the foundation of all our Christian action in the Beatitudes. It's also not a hierarchy, right? It's not, well, this is the first Beatitude, and therefore it's more important than the second one. You know, no, they're they're all part of our foundation. You can't have a foundation that only you know, has three pillars that are important and then the other four are just there optional, right? No, your house will fall down if those crack, right? So they're all part of your foundation of your Christian action. Yeah, it isn't like a like Christian life, you know, as a game where you can get a slightly higher score. You know, like <laughs> I scored, you know, nine points out of the available 10. So I'm doing better than someone who only scored six points out of the available 10. 
Right. It's that the Christian has to be trying to live out all of Catholic te- Catholic social teaching, of Catholic moral teaching, of the Catholic teaching in general, because it's all related to the person of Christ, the the one eternal Son of God who wants to live with and in and through us, and we can't separate that up. We can't mm-hmm. separate up the life of grace within us. So, of course, the ways that discipleship are lived out are manifold, but the reality that they all point back to is one. Yes. And yeah, so we have the, the Beatitudes as our foundation, and and we should actually read the Gospels as, you know, through the, the eyes of the Beatitude. How did Jesus live his life? And, and you will absolutely find all of the Beatitudes in the life of Jesus, right? That is the gospel message. But there are practical things that Jesus also did and taught that, you know, remind us of how these Beatitudes shouldn't just stay internal. They should be external. They should be, there should be fruits of these Beatitudes. And a lot of times that's where I would understand that the works of mercy come about. The works of mercy are these practical things that come out of the Beatitudes. Um, They're, in, in my mind, it's a practical guide of things that Christians should be doing that um, come out of the Beatitudes. And if we aren't doing these things, then we need to step back and think why, you know, what's what's going on in our foundation, right? Um, it's, it's funny, though, because, you know, the works of mercy, even though they are a practical guide, they also remind me of the, there's a, a quote out there, I think, um, they even mention it in Dorothy Day's book, um, but it's a mo- often misattributed quote. <laughs> and it says, if you feed the poor, I'm a saint. But if I ask why, I'm a communist. And I actually looked back and there's a Brazilian archbishop that apparently said that in the uh, last century. <laughs> but And so the idea behind that is that the works of mercy are the things that you're doing. But as Christians, we should also ask why are these things happening? Why are these evils happening? Why are these iniquities happening? Why uh, um, do why is there poor? Why are there poor people? Why do we have um, workers that don't have jobs? Why are there people being killed on the street in wars? And those are the questions that um, start to you know raise flags in a lot of people because there's a lot of different reasons often. And because this is where we start to step into the realm of, well, there's bigger things that are affecting these people than just, you know, individuals, you know, being evil, right? There's no evil individuals out there just causing people to be poor. And and so often I would think that the works of mercy, we do them out of charity, but there should also be a, a teaching that, or a, a, a meaning that uh, gives us reason for why these works have happened. Uh, why, why are we doing these works of mercy? And why are these people in the situation that they're in? And that's where Catholic social teaching steps in, right? It's, it's, a, it's something that helps us to understand why are we doing these works and also helps to fix, you know, honestly, much bigger problems than just an individual, you know, that is poor on the street. Yes, the Catholic social teachings are tightly connected to justice. They're really teaching us how to live with justice in our everyday life, in how we relate to one another and how we work with one another. And if we don't have justice towards others, our charity will be kind of flat. Imagine that, you know, some 
uh, thieves showed up at your house and ran off with a lot of your stuff. And then later they gave you a few of the things back and they said they were being charitable. Well, they, they can't be charitable. Uh, they don't have justice. Without justice, there is that foundation. Uh, we can't be charitable because charity is giving from what is ours to another. And if we don't know, you know, like what is ours and what actually is another's, if we don't have that distinction, then we won't know whether we're actually being charitable or if we're just, um, you know, failing to even make the grade of being just. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what are you defining justice as? That's, I guess, my first starting point. What is justice? So justice would be giving to each what is due to them. Mm -hmm. And if something is, you know, like obviously like you could look at it between two individuals and, you know, court of law, it often comes up, you know, what, what is just in this case? What does one person owe another? But there are certain things that every human being is owed Mm -hmm. just by nature of, of who they are. And that especially is laid out in Catholic social teaching. What is it? So for instance, you know, we'll, we'll get to the basic principles later on, but for instance, um, every human being has a right to life that no one can kill an innocent human being because that's an act of injustice. And so if these injustices are happening, there's something wrong with the society we live in. And through Catholic social teaching, we can work to remedy those injustices that are in our society. Mm-hmm. And then there's actually even a, um, I like to think of it as, you know, justice and charity. They are complementary, but they're also not the same thing. And and I think that's very good of what you stepped on there, is that um, if we love others with charity, first of all, we have to be just towards them. That's actually something in, uh, what is it, Caritas and Veritate, that um, that we we have to be just first before we can even be charitable. We have to give, you know, a person that does not have the right to life has been unjustly treated already before we can even be charitable to them. Um, someone that does not have a home, you can't just be charitable and, you know, hand them a hamburger and say, well, that was my justice for you. No, they, they're being unjustly treated because they don't even have a, a roof to sleep under tonight. There's, there's levels of uh, justice versus charity here. Um, another, uh, there's a Vatican II decree that said, what is ready due in justice is not to be offered as a gift of charity. And so that's, that's been very important to me is that a lot of times, you know, we go around and we, we think that I'm doing charity. I'm doing, um, acts of charity because I'm, um, providing meals for the poor. I'm providing, um, a care for the sick. I'm providing, um, you know, counsel for the afflicted. And a lot of times, you know, we offer those as gifts of charity, but we're missing the justice part because we can't, one can't count for both, right? Right. And, and so there are complementary components of any parish social ministry. Neither alone is sufficient. Um, the Catholic bishops in uh, 1993 wrote Charity and Outreach, um, the, an exhortation or a document on this topic. And they say neither alone is sufficient. You can't do just justice or charity. Both are essential signs of the gospel at work. They say a, a parish that's serious about social ministry will offer opportunities to serve those in need and to advocate for justice and peace. And so they're both important. 
I like the quote you were referencing from Caritas and Veritate um, says that I cannot give what is mine to the other without first giving him what pertains to him in justice. Mm-hmm. If we love others with charity, then first of all, we are just towards them. Not only is justice not extraneous to charity, not only is it not an alternative or parallel path to charity, justice is inseparable from charity and intrinsic to it. Mm-hmm. And this is a teaching that goes all the way back to the early days of the church. I like a quote from Basil the Great in which he says, when someone steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. Should we not give the same name to one who could clothe the naked and does not do it? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the poor who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. We can see from this uh, more recent document by Pope Benedict XVI and this document all the way back from Basil the Great that the church has always seen that the well-to-do have an obligation in justice to assist the poor. Yeah, that that actually changed that Basil the Great uh, quote there really changed my perspective on my own charity, my own life of charity. Like I have a closet full of jackets and coats that are never used, right? Literally. And to see those every day, I'm like, oh my gosh, if I, and, and, and the fact that I could go hand those out and that's not even charity. That's just literally, that is just justice. Um, and so the, the, th- you know, the, 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 what is it? Uh, almsgiving, fasting and, um, in prayer that we do during Lent, a lot of times our almsgiving isn't even almsgiving. It's just pure justice. That's you're giving to someone who we're giving something that belongs to them already. Um, and that, that has literally changed my mind and changed my outlook on when I just see a poor person or when I see that a war going on in the world, when I see things on TV, it really changes my mind when you think of it in that way. Yeah, because charity can, can end up seeming so um, optional almost. And like, you know, like if you do a little charity, well, you're better than someone who does none. You're like, well, you know, like I might not give away everything I have to the poor or anything like that. But, you know, here I am. I must be a pretty good person because, you know, every month I write a check or something mm-hmm. and, and uh, I, I'm going above and beyond the call of duty. But when justice comes in, everyone realizes that justice is connected with a duty. And suddenly one can realize that one isn't living up to one's duty, that one is unjust. And I think that's why such strong emotions can get raised when um, we start talking about uh, the, ca- the church's social teaching and about social justice, because justice is kind of a hard-edged word. Uh, it's a frightening word. And I think for those who might feel that kind of uncomfort or, or unease, it's good to probably know that... Um, it, possibly related to uh, a kind of a misunderstanding of the Christian life in which we think that, uh, you know, the Christian is one who is just, who has got it all together. And really the Christian life is about realizing that one's unjust, realizing how deeply one has fallen short, and then realizing how much mercy one's been given in Christ, and then trying to show that mercy as far as one can, one can to others. So that if, Thinking through the demands of justice here that Basil the Great or that Benedict the Sixteenth are laying out is making one feel that you know one is unjust. Then that's actually, in one sense, part of the point. Of course, we're supposed to work to become just, but we're never probably in this life going to be able to become completely just. Only in Christ can we 
be redeemed from all the injustices that we are part of. Yeah. And then we're back at, it's that humility of recognizing your own um, selfishness, your own uh, lacking in your own, in your own life that, and we're back at the Beatitudes again, right? Blessed are the meek, um, which is, you know, a great way to see each of each of our own lives, you know, in the eyes of God, that we're all, we're all missing something. And to see one of the Beatitudes is, of course, blessed are those who mourn. And part of that mourning is to feel sorrow for the injustices in the world, for the injustices in ourself, for this whole web of sin that we're caught in. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember someone saying that when they used the example of Jonah in the whale <clears throat> and, you know, God wants to pull us out of this beast of injustice and sin that's engulfed the human race. But for him to pull us out, we have to want to get out. Yeah. We can't be comfortable. If we're, if we're comfortable with what we have, then we won't recognize, um, we won't recognize that we need Christ. Poverty helps us to have that readiness, that awareness that something is wrong. And we can, if, if we're not poor ourselves, we can get that awareness, as Pope Francis says, by paying attention to the peripheries, by really watching carefully what is happening to the poor and seeing with their eyes what might be wrong with the world and realizing what a, what a need we have for redemption. Yeah. And, and everything you just said reminds me so much of, have you heard the, the allegory of the cave by, uh, I think it was by Plato. Yes. Um, so it's, it's this, this image that he sets up that really explains a lot of what you just said. <laughs> um, the idea is that there are people who are stuck in a cave and they're watching shadows bouncing on a wall, right? And they believe that these shadows on the wall are depictions of real life. This this is really what's happening. These are things that we should just be watching. It's, you know, think of it as the child, literally, you know, if a child is sitting in front of a TV, how do they watch the TV? They're usually, you know, mouth open, drooling. They're not really paying attention to much else in the world. But these shadows in his allegory are are coming from a fire that's actually behind them and from some puppet masters that are between them and the fire. And they are creating these shadows to distract them, to, to allow them to be comfortable where they're at and to let them think that they are actually part of this real allegory of life. But in reality, the one who, you know, looks away from those shadows and sees the truth of what's behind them, to see the fire, to see the puppet masters, they're like, why am I here anymore? Why do I need to sit here? I, th- there's there's a hole, there's an exit to the cave that I can leave right now. And that's the Christian life. That's what Jesus is is calling when he, when he asks for metanoids. He's asking us to look away from those things that are distracting us, that, that image of self-salvation, of self-righteousness, all the things that the Beatitudes speaks against, right? All those images... He's asking us to look away from those, to see what life really is, to really look at the poor, to really look at those who are downtrodden, to really look at those who are suffering, and to head towards them. And that's where we find Christ. That's where God is, right, is in the exit of that cave. Um, And that's, I I think that's just such a beautiful image. So I invite anyone to go look up a picture. There's a lot of images you can Google 
you know, allegory of the cave. And there's a lot of images out there where people represent this in different ways. It's a great representation to keep in front of you of what are you looking at? Are you looking at really what's going on in the world? And a lot of this gets caught up in, you know, it, it, if we don't remember that Jesus came for the poor, Jesus came for the sick, Jesus came for those who are suffering, then we get stuck up in these politics and these other conversations and like, you know, that people, that the world wants us to be involved in. The world wants us to be in these arguments about um, politics, literally. And, um, and that distracts us. That distracts us from the real work of God. I think, you know, this idea of uh, finding reality and finding God in it, Pope Francis has talked about this so many times about going to the periphery to see clearly. And moving into one of the particular principles of Catholic social teaching uh, was the rights and dignity of those who work. Um, which was laid out in Rerum Revarum by Pope Leo XIII in the very first social encyclical. And one of the things that helped me to suddenly see reality was reading William T. Kavanaugh's book, Being Consumed, in which he talks about the fact that our cheap goods are coming at the literal price of the lives of others in sweatshop labor in the global South. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how none of us would kill someone for a shirt, but that we're all killing people for shirts. And that if we, if we can't face that reality that we could be killing someone, then how can we say that we're a Christian? And uh, that for me was a shocking moment of awakening because in, in, you know, Rerum Navarum was over 130 years ago now. And he talks about the, the degradation that can fall upon workers even says this uh, servitude almost worse than slavery that has fallen on so many of the working class of his time. And I remember um, when I lived in Pennsylvania, I toured a coal mine that had been long disused, uh, but now was, you know, you could go and take a tour. And so we went down about a, about a mile underground into these endless dark tunnels. And the guide was talking about the men, you know, crawling through these narrow passages, working in the coal dust that was going to you know, prematurely end their lives. And they told the story about how um, there were, there were mules that lived in, in the mine to haul the carts. And when some sort of disaster happened, as so often did when water broke into the mine or a fire broke out, or there's a cave in the owners of the mine would focus on getting the mules out because mules cost money and immigrant workers, uh, you know, didn't cost anything. If they died, it was no loss to the company. But if, if the mules died, it was a financial loss. So that's the world that Pope Leo uh, was writing about. You know, here in, in the developed world, in, in Britain, in the United States, this early industrialism that treated human beings, human workers, as if they were worth nothing. And we can sometimes think, oh, you know, like we've come so far beyond that. You know, like that sounds horrifying to us, you know, and that's kind of the idea, you know, these, this coal mine tour. The guide was saying, you know, like, well, how would you like to do that? You know, um, and and of course, we were all like, you know, you know, thank your lucky stars that you didn't live, you know, back 100 years ago when, when this sort of thing happened. Um, but the thing is, just like that image of the cave, it's just been hidden from us now mm -hmm. in in China, in South America and so many other places where our goods are now manufactured. 
the realities are still much the same as it was 100 years ago for those Pennsylvania coal miners. And it's just been removed from our eyes. Yeah. At least then we might have been able to see it. The, the miners and those who lived around them might have been able to realize that something was wrong. And they did realize. They realized that there, there was something gravely wrong. And Pope Leo encouraged that movement towards, um, towards the organization of workers to bargain for better uh, pay and better treatment. He called upon employers to treat them well. But unfortunately, what happened instead was that most of the global manufacturing industry moved around the world to places where there still is no protection for those workers. And we're all, to a certain extent, complicit in this. All you have to do is look at the tags on your goods, where they come from. And you'll see that most of them are going to come from places where workers are still treated as if they were just a dispensable item in production. Yeah, that's really an interesting analogy because that's where, you know, rerum novarum came from was literally that situation of at the time, you know, in the late 1800s, there was the industrial revolution, right? It was a shift. There was a, there was a, a, a worldwide shift from this um, farming agricultural season based work where, you know, people generally worked close to home. They generally worked with the seasons. So there was naturally periods of, of rest there was times when you didn't work. There was times when you worked really hard. And then you shared in the fruits of the of those farms, right? Even the, the lowly workers could share in those fruits a lot of times because it was available to them. And then it was shifted to this global mechanized, organized industry. Um, the Catholic social doctrine, uh, compendium of social doctrine uh, calls it a new Areopagus. Uh, referencing the the Greek Areopagus in Acts uh, chapter seventeen, and it's it's talking about how the world changed fundamentally in the way that we work, and we can't just say, well, you know, the world changed. Let's keep going, right? No, we have to speak. We have to keep uh, portraying our faith into that new setting, and we have to be as Christians. It is our duty to go into these situations and proclaim this. And what that means is that when we have new forms of production, when the world changes, we have to voice our opinions. We have to, to speak up. It doesn't mean we, we can't stop the world from, you know, going into the industrial revolution. That would be, you know, you know, impossible, first of all. <laughs> um, but we have to be able to direct it into something that is inherently good or it produces justice for all that are a part of it, right? Um, and so that's where even today, you, you mentioned this today, you know, we have a world, a completely worldwide economy where work is being done, you know, 10,000 miles from me that I can buy something off the shelf that was being produced a month ago in some sweatshop and then got put on a ship and, you know, went across the ocean and it's been sold three times since then. I can't just separate myself from all of those people who have touched this shirt that I bought. And so we have to recognize that there's always fresh questions. There's always problems, new problems that are arising. There are fresh hopes, but there are also always fears and threats. This is a direct quote from uh, St. John Paul II. He wrote Laborum Exorcens. So he, he writes that there are always new fresh, fear, fresh fears and threats. Work 
contains the unceasing measure of human toil and suffering, but also of the harm and injustice which penetrate deeply in societal life within nations and internationally. And so this was already being highlighted uh, it, during St. John Paul II, during his time. Um, so just because we're not seeing the, you know, crazy stuff that happened in the, you know, coal mines and in the industrial revolutions in these factories, um, there was also even, you know, we can, there's an example in Let Us Dream that Pope Francis talks about the Tower of Babel is the same thing where bricks were, were valued more than people. And we can't just say, well, at least we're not there. No, these things are still happening today. We just don't see them necessarily. We always have to bring, you know, the gospel, as you said, into the new realities around us. Because, you know, that's why Christ left us at church. He, he could only come to one spot on the earth, to one point in time. And then as his mystical body, we're supposed to carry that presence to every time and every place. And... I mean, that's the, the very title, Rerum Novarum, means new things. It's, you know, it's a new thing for the church to talk about uh, the rights of workers and economics, but it was a new thing that was called upon by the times. The church can't just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. It has to repeat the same message throughout all time. But every time the message must be proclaimed in such a way that it makes sense to the world around it. Yeah. And so... Yes, if we if we just allow ourselves to fall into this modern trap, which has now been going for the last few hundred years of seeing work as just a thing, you know, if you're trying to keep a spreadsheet for how profitable a business is, there'll be a you know labor costs. If labor costs are too high, uh, you know, the business isn't going to be very profitable. So you have to try and reduce labor costs. But labor costs is a cipher meaning human beings. We can't ever see a human being as merely um, an aspect or of production. Instead, production, the economy has to serve human beings. Mm -hmm. Human beings don't serve it. And that's an easy trap we can just fall into, you know. Um, you know, we can even just... For instance, we can complain that, oh, you know, like some some product we wanted isn't in on time, some service we wanted isn't happening quite as smoothly as we would have liked, and we can entirely forget the human beings that are actually behind uh, that product and, and thus fall into kind of an ungrateful, uncaring uh, feeling towards them. Whereas if we, if we school ourselves in sort of this imagination, you know, the, the very word compassion, means suffering with. So if we suffer with, and that's not just pain as such, if we share the life of, in, in an imaginative way, share the life of those who work for us, then we won't fall into that trap of seeing them as just, you know, as, as if they were machines themselves. And then if we realize that those who work for us, whether directly or indirectly, are suffering, then we have to be moved to take action to try to protect them as best we can. And, you know, some of the some of the best um, CEOs that I have known, and I've even worked for one or two of them, maybe, that um, they, they are the people who they know the ins and outs of their company so much that they literally w will be willing 
to go in and start working with the average worker. Um, there's actually a popular show on TV that's been going on for a couple of years, I guess, that where, you know, uh, the CEOs will actually go and do this. They'll actually go in and, and, and hire themselves in as a, a day laborer and just work with people. And they, of course, you know, these people have no clue who this guy is, <laughs> but he's the CEO of the com- company. And, but that's an important step, I think, in understanding for anyone to, to know how it feels to be in these positions. How do, what, it, what is it like to actually, you know, work for, you know, myself as this day laborer? That, that's a really interesting proposition for most people. Um, and that's part of that. Again, this goes into Catholic social teaching. That's that's literally called solidarity, um, which we haven't got to yet. But these are all so linked together that that's that's important to for, you know, um, bosses and, and people who uh, hire laborers to know what their workers are going through. Um, and And a lot of that will help to dispel those those problems of you know, following maximum profit, trying to get the lowest la- lowest possible wage, right? Um, but it really also helps you to understand what the work is and what are the problems that these people are seeing. I think, too, part of uh, what we need in this idea about seeing the dignity of workers and the dignity of work is to understand work properly. Um, in Centesimus Annus, uh, John Paul II talks about how work has a certain inherent dignity. It's part of our share in the creation of the world, actually. God allows us to share in this, just like he allows us to assist in the work of redemption in the church. He allows us in our daily work, in our lives, to share in the creation of the world. And we were that was even before the fall. We were called to tend the garden, mm-hmm. to till the earth. So in, in a sense, the, the completion of creation needs us, needs our help because God wills it so. And that's a, a great dignity. But also that work is never for itself. That work is for the sake of rest. Uh, and that's covered both in Laborum Exercens and Centesimus Annus. Um, that it's not just for recreation. You know, recreation stems from recreate. And recreation is for the sake of work, that we, through recreation, we recreate ourselves so that we can go on working. So companies like to think of it in terms of recreation, you know, some free time so that you can come back and work better. And of course, that's true. I mean, if someone had to work, uh, you know, 10 hours a day, seven days a week, they might not be as effective anymore. Uh, and, And in some cases, unfortunately, especially in the medical profession, as we've seen over this past year, even outside of pandemic times, often nurses and other medical workers have to work, you know, 15, 16, 20 hour shifts, which is a great risk for the human beings that they have to care for. And that's an obvious case of an abuse of these workers. But it's not just that, that work, not only does one need enough recreation to enable one to keep working, but that work is fundamentally for leisure. Work is fundamentally for not working. <laughs> that we have to, and, and just saying that sounds crazy. <laughs> yeah. uh, in our American culture, we're so embedded in this idea of, of the importance of work, which has been schooled into us by this economy that needs us as workers. But that everything we do is for the sake of resting. We see that also in the beginning of Genesis. 
that God created the world and he rested, that, that the, the work he did was aimed at a certain end point, the, the being of this, of this good thing, so that all the work we do should be enabling us to properly take our leisure. And that's, you know, in the things that are, leisure is the things that aren't necessary, the things we do for themselves. You know, every work is a thing we do for something. So we build a house so that we can have a house. We work a job so that we get a paycheck. There's always a, a for what. But let's say we're just sitting and, and talking with a friend we love. It's not for anything. It's a leisure thing. It's a thing good for itself. And the ultimate good thing for itself is contemplation with God in heaven. All our work in this life is a preparation for the leisure of heaven that isn't for anything. But as if we're so schooled as workers and as seeing others as workers, we have a hard time imagining that things aren't for something. So we end up seeing others as for something. We see ourselves as for our work instead of as for leisure, as for nothing at all, for for the enjoyment of the thing, for the goodness of the thing. We're actually suspicious of enjoying things for themselves. You just you just popped into my mind this image of, you know, sitting in heaven and you're like looking around, everyone's just saying glory, glory, and you're like, okay, what do we do now? Yeah, what's the point? <laughs> I'm working. What, 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 what do I need to do? Do I need to sweep around here? Do I need, I mean, come on guys, give me some work. Yeah. If we can't, if we can't understand the value of work here on earth and its relationship to rest, the Sabbath is, you know, a great example of that from all of Old Testament. Um, then how can we expect to do that for eternity in heaven? Right? <laughs> yes. And there's, there's actually a really intriguing connection between the Sabbath in the Old Testament and the exile of the people of Israel and the Babylonian captivity. Um, because not only did they have a weekly Sabbath, but they had a Sabbath every seven years where the land was left fallow and no work was done. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were told very strictly. It's interesting how emphatic God is about it, that they have to keep both the weekly Sabbath and the yearly Sabbath. And then the, the 50th year Jubilee where mm-hmm. all debts were canceled. And again, everyone, everyone didn't work and, and everything went free. Imagine if we had a jubilee every 50 years. Man. I know. Amazing. <laughs> and apparently they didn't keep these Sabbaths. They didn't orient work to rest. And so they abused the poor, the workers, by not giving them, not allowing them to properly work in a human matter, manner oriented towards that leisure. And they abused the land. And so the prophet Jeremiah says that you will be exiled for as many years as you miss the Sabbaths, the land, the land will have its rest while you're in exile, and then you can return. Uh, so there's this, this connection between, in the Old Testament, between the worship of God and this Sabbath, that the worship of God is one of these leisured activities that is the end of work. And to properly humanize work, we have to include that aspect of Sabbath rest. St. Isidore is a great example of that that he, he's known as the worker, right? Um, and he had this miracle that he actually was seen by his boss not working, but instead praying. And so, you know, the, 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 his boss comes in and starts, you know, chastising him. Why aren't you working? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And then he looks up and sees that so there's some angels literally tending the plow, 
in, in plowing the field for him. And that's a it's one of the miracles that he's attributed that is attributed to him. But it's that is a great example of that. What comes first in our lives? Do we put work first or do we put put prayer first? Or and where do we put our family and all that? Does that family just yeah, it's kind of at the end, right? No. We we need to take care of God, of our neighbors, and especially our family, and then work. Right there's a there's a relationship that all of those come about. Um, I I can tell you from example of my life working in as a salaried worker in industry, a lot of times Sunday is not kept as sacred as it is you know in in what we would think of it is in Christian circles. Right there's a lot of times where we are asked to work all hours of the night on weekends, and it's just part of the duty. Right, so you have to understand that there's a balance there. There needs to be a time of rest. And without that healthy time of rest, you're going to miss out on your family. You're going to miss out on your prayer time. Those things are always going to be juggled to the end if all of if if your entire time is taken up with work. I think too one of the ways that this can be missed or warped is that of course it's terrible if if companies are you know putting too heavy of a workload on people so that they can't properly orient their work to leisure. But there's uh, a more subtle way in which our economy makes us overwork ourselves. Our economy addicts us to all these uh, luxury goods, these consumer items, these status Mm -hmm. symbols. And so we can end up voluntarily overworking so that we can achieve that uh, recognition that we're not, uh, you know, seen as, valuable unless we have these things. And the only way to do that is to work more. And so even if the companies we work for don't uh, enforce um, too long of hours, people will often voluntarily uh, surrender their leisure time because they don't understand their dignity. They don't understand the proper ends of work. And they, they see the end of work as attaining this status that they can get if they just work another weekend, if they just work a few more hours of overtime. Nice bringing into the, the consumerist paradigm there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- that's one of the things that Pope Francis harps on is this con- consumerist ideology, consumerist paradigm that we have, we live to consume. Right. And, and it's not just the consuming. That's the problem. It's all of the other fruits that come from that desire to consume. It's that, well, I got to work more so I can consume more. I can, I have to consume more. And so therefore someone else now has to work more as well. We're, we're consuming way more than we need to be consuming. And so the world is, is, is burdened under our consumption. Oh yeah, we're paying them for it, right? We're, we're paying wages, but you don't know what, you don't know how that worker in the Philippines is working. You don't know that they have to literally walk with just an egg in their hand for lunch for the entire meal for the day and spend the night at their farm so that, that you can have, you know, a banana. I mean, there's things that are going on in this world that we have no concept of and that's part, it's all related, right? (laughs) Yeah. We have a, a responsibility to find this out. We, and it's, it's so much easier now perhaps than it was at one, at some other point. You know, that we, in, in past times, it might not have been so easy to find out what was going on around the world. But now it's all there if we care to educate ourselves. 
And, and this has to be a first, you know, like that education has to be a first step in developing sympathy for others. Yeah, we live in a, in a, in a globalized environment, right? But that allows us to see the globe. That allows us to physically go and see a lot of these things that are happening. If not just on, you know, on um, social media or whatever, you, you can see a lot of things that are happening. Now, of course, granted, there comes with that a lot of the, the noise that comes along with those uh, mediums. And therefore, we have to kind of be able to judge what is real and what's not. We also have to learn that we can listen to those who are in the know, right? We can listen to our bishops. We can listen to our Pope. We can listen to people in the church who are trying to tell us that something is wrong without just immediately saying, well, that, that can't be true, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's going to affect me. Right. And that's where all social teaching comes with a responsibility. It comes with a sacrifice. Yeah. You know, like moving from the, the rights of workers as it's, that principle to another principle of Catholic social teaching, the principle of human rights and human responsibilities. Uh, the idea that, you know, ev- every human has certain rights and that every other, hu- every human being also has a responsibility towards everyone else to make sure those rights are met. So our right to life, a, a right to not just uh, life itself, but to all the things that make up a healthy, decent human life for an individual and for our family. The fact is that if we don't educate ourselves, we won't know what our responsibilities are. And, and, you know, in in the American um, culture, we talk a lot about rights. We're pretty touchy if we think someone's infringing on our (laughs) rights, but we don't sometimes remember that with every right comes a responsibility, that if we have a right, that means everyone else does too. And part of our responsibility is recognizing those rights of others. Yeah. And sometimes it is our Christian duty to, to cede our rights, to give up a right so that other one, another person may have theirs. I think it's interesting too, that in, in the Catholic teaching on rights, um, there's also, you know, like they're not just seen solely as individual rights, but they're also vested in the rights of the family. That, for instance, uh, individual doesn't just have, um, you know, a right to enough pay to support him or herself, but enough pay to support a family in a healthy way. Yeah, that's that's a huge thing that when you start learning about Catholic social teaching and actually reading what popes have written on this stuff. I mean, it's, you, you recognize how far off we really are, right? A just wage is something that was, you know, proposed, you know, back at the beginning of social teaching, it was reiterated as an entire chapter in Quadragesimo Anno. It's in the catechism. Just wage as a legitimate fruit of work is there. And what does that mean? That literally means a wage to support you and your family. We've gone so far away from that. We require now almost, almost everywhere, we require two wages to support a family. And this has been linked to several other evils in our culture. Um, Charlie Camosi, Charles Camosi, um, wrote a great book about how the working mother culture has result- resulted in this breakdown of family. It has resulted in a need for abortion which, by the way, 70% are financially motivated now. Birth control and 
um, also has resulted in the role of, as I'll quote Dorothy Day here, Holy Mother State as the caregiver. And it's because we don't have wages that allow a person to work and support his family. You know, the the welfare connection is very interesting because a lot of people decry the welfare state. But what isn't seen is that the welfare state in all of its forms is largely the result of corporations wanting to privatize their profits for themselves, but to socialize their liabilities so that if they don't pay enough for their workers or don't give their workers proper health care coverage or all these other things, they socialize all those things so that the taxes of, of the citizens cover for their, their liabilities and their costs, or they cover for their environmental damage, but they privatize their profits so that they don't have yeah. to pay out. So that there's a connection here that if we, you know, we should, as, as Dorothy Day did, we should decry the welfare state, but we can only do so by realizing why the welfare state came into being and who ultimately benefits from it. Yeah. Don't get me started on medical insurance, which itself is socialism, by the way. (laughs) Um, And it's a requirement because we don't have anything inherently that takes care of the medical needs of people. Yeah. And that's one of the rights of human beings is an access to basic medical care. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, in Centesimus Annos, that that says that the church sees her mission includes the defense and promotion of human rights. So, you know, obviously the primary mission of the church is to show Christ to others, but it's just interesting that it also sees part of its mission as being the support of basic human rights. So St. John Paul II, um, he actually defined um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the United Nations, as a true milestone on the path of humanity's moral progress. So this is a declaration, uh, for anyone that's not familiar with it, it was written in 1948, of course, heavily, heavily influenced by World War II and the fallout from that and the lead up to that. Um, it's a declaration that directly uh, introduced the idea of asylum, um, of refugees, because the Jewish people were not being accepted at a time where the world knew that something was happening but no one was willing to take the risk to accept them. And so therefore, we had a, um, a case of genocide going on. And the Declaration of Human Rights was written specifically to prevent this recurrence. And now it's forgotten, right? In many places, the right to asylum has been construed or, or cut down so heavily or limited so much that, that it's not really necessarily a right anymore. And yet... This was one of those true milestones that St. John Paul II talked about. Um, There's other things that were in this, you know, that a lot of the same things we talk about. Security, rest and leisure, the the right to have leisure, the right to workers union, unemployment pay, the freedom to change your nationality, um, social protection for children and mothers. Um, These are all, you know, basic human rights. We've all talked about this. They're all part of Catholic social teaching. And that's therefore why he, I believe that he, you know, said that it's really, this is the right path that we're going down, recognizing the, the goodness that was happening in, you know, the world. And this always makes me think of this story. We were, um, we were actually traveling in um, Malaysia 
and we were on a we were on a bus and there was this family that was had some uh, I think they had two young kids about our kids age and so they started playing and they were getting along real well and we started talking with this family they were uh, a Ukrainian family and um, they had been this was what six five years ago now when um, Ukraine started to kind of fall apart and become insecure again security is one of these rights but they because of the situation they weren't allowed to claim asylum it was just um a dangerous situation that they were in and so they were literally traveling around the world just hopping through countries and living out uh, visitor visas in every country they could get to and this was a breakdown of their right to claim asylum and now, of course, because of this, they also can't work because you can't work in a country unless you're, you know, a national or or have a green card in in the U.S. sense, right? And so it's it's once you take away one of these rights, the whole card, the whole stack of cards just comes down, right? You can't just say this one is optional; they're all important. I think too, you know, for those who might be wondering why why the church sees the promotion of basic human rights as part of its mission, it's connected to the idea of the mystical body of Christ, that if we really see every other human being as a brother or sister, realize that we all have the same creator, the same possibility of redemption in Christ, then of course we're interested in everything that concerns them. Nothing nothing that happens to them could possibly be a matter of indifference to us. So that because the church is promoting and spreading the message of Jesus Christ, and because that message includes a concept of universal solidarity, that brotherhood, then obviously our mission has to be also defending the human rights of others. And especially, uh, you know, looking at the next principle down the list, especially the poor and the vulnerable, that the church has a real preferential option for them. Yeah, and, and it goes above politics. Like we like to just segregate our lives and say, well, again, you know, well, this is a right. Everyone has it. Everyone has a, the right to buy a home, right? Everyone has the right to go to school. But sometimes the, what the church is, the church is, um, be- the beauty of the church and the position of the church allows her to step in and see the suffering of individual people. It allows the church to see that sometimes those rights may be enumerated, but they're not necessarily uh, fully allowed. Um, a great example of this was when we were working on a mission in Costa Rica. Um, education is a right, is free. It's free for anyone who's um, in the country. So even our kids could go to school there for free. The problem is, is that there's sometimes little barriers that are put in place that usually affect the poor and vulnerable going into that preferential option. It's usually the other way around. So in this case, to go to school in Costa Rica, it was required, mandated that you had to buy a school uniform. You had to buy all of your books as well. And, oh, that doesn't sound like much, except that in this town that we were in, it was so secluded that shoes cost $25. The uniform together, all together, cost well over $50. And that's just, that's a barrier that's almost too high for most poor people to be able to afford. 
even up, up front at the beginning of the school year. And not to say that you don't just usually buy one school uniform for a kid and expect them to be able to wear it for an entire year, right? No, you usually have to buy two, sometimes three, depending on you know how unruly your child is. <laughs> so this was a barrier that was put in place in, a, in the face of a right. And, you know, most people can just look at the law and say, well, everyone can have it. But no, our job is to step in and see these situations and say, no, this isn't right. There's something blocking us here. And so there's also often these rights are discriminated. Another example is that, you know, I've kind of stepped into this one um, as well, is that a lot of times the right to buy a home uh, often prefers the not poor and vulnerable. And that's more than just the list price is what I'm talking about there. You know, there's we have FHA, we have uh, government loans that allow people to buy houses, even, you know, if they are poor. But oftentimes these loans aren't accepted for certain houses. The, the seller of a house can actually say, we will not accept government, government loans. That's a discrimination against the poor and vulnerable. And so that's, that's where we need to, as Christians, understand that it is our right to not just discriminate against them, or not just not discriminate against them, but actually prefer the poor and vulnerable, which is a totally different mindset that Jesus taught in the Gospels. It's interesting how enshrined this is, even in the Old Testament. Um, you know, in Leviticus, they're told you can't glean your field for yourself. You have to leave all the gleanings of the field for the poor. And this, this interest in making sure that the weaker members of the community are taken care of. So you know, like in your stories about the, the refugees from the Ukraine or about the poor children in Costa Rica, society should look especially at these individuals who are more likely to suffer and really focus on making sure that those individuals are protected, are safe, that their welfare is actually taken care of. Because if they don't, yeah, as you said, they'll, they'll just fall through the cracks. There's nobody now whose job it is to take care of this family from the Ukraine. But that's that's wrong. It should be all of our responsibility, both as individuals and as social groups, to ensure that this sort of thing doesn't happen. Even to the point of, as I mentioned before, renouncing some of our own rights so as to place our goods more generously at the service of others. That's a direct quote from Octogesima Advinians. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's we have to understand that what we, again, goes back to what we have, our rights, what we own, is should be put at the service of others. And so sometimes that means letting them go. It's interesting also that, you know, thinking about the preferential option for the poor, something that's really struck me is that feeding the poor uh, you know, after we've taken care of our very basic needs, feeding the poor has to take precedence over just about everything else. Um, because, you know, like, let's imagine that your brother, your, your actual blood brother was starving. Obviously, you would give up any, you know, any luxury, any little indulgence. You might even, you know, like, oh, well, if your shirt had a hole in it, you know, oh, well, you would you'd give up anything you had to to be able to feed him. And we're supposed to look at everyone that way, or even like, think about you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you were starving, you certainly wouldn't, um, you know, spend money on a trip to Disneyland. You would 
you know, anyone who wasn't wasn't mentally, uh, you know, deranged would spend that money on food for themselves. And and if you love the other as yourself, obviously that person's need would come, you know, before your enjoyments. And I remember, I don't remember the, the context now, but St. John Paul II said that lesser needs must give way to greater needs. So sure, I mean, you know, people do need uh, recreation and, and these other things, but your lesser needs have to give way to the more pressing need of your brother who is starving. And it's interesting also, because you start talking about that and then you we we talked about the right to have time off or the time to leisure right so then often more than not we start looking at the poor and we say hey they just they just took off the other day and they didn't even work they went on a vacation we start pointing at them for as we would quote using their money unwisely and yet we do the same thing and it's no problem right so um, <laughs> I, I, it reminds me of the, of the story of uh, Pope Francis when he was walking along the streets of Rome and, you know, get handed out a five euro bill to a, a beggar on the street. And this guy with him, I, I forgot if they said it was a cardinal or a bishop. And he says, you know, he's just going to go and buy um, alcohol with that. And Pope said, yeah, so would I. <laughs> so what's the difference? Right, right. What's the, <laughs> we, we think that like, uh, there's kind of this austere sort of mentality that looks at them and says, well, if they only, if, you know, like if they only made all the, the prudent and uh, frugal choices, whereas we're not, we're not willing to take on the same, how can we expect them to, to live as we would refuse to do? Yeah. Uh, merely so that we don't have to get bothered by the idea. Um, and, and, Something else that I've been thinking about is how feeding the poor comes even before, um, comes even before, uh, in a sense, uh, giving money to God. Because, of course, the, the catch is that we can't actually give money to God. Uh, you know, when he was here in the flesh, we could. But now the only place that he is here in, in a form which needs care of that sort is in the poor. As he said, you know, like those as you treat mm-hmm. the poor, you're treating me. So uh, there's this quote from St. John Chrysostom, which I really like. He says, Of what use is it to weigh down Christ's table with golden cups when he himself is dying of hunger? First fill him when he is hungry, then use the means you have left to adorn his table. Will you have a gold cup made, but not give a cup of water? What is the use of providing the table with cloths woven of gold thread? and not providing Christ himself with the clothes he needs. What profit is there in that? Tell me, if you were to see him lacking the necessary food, but were to leave him in that state, and merely surround his table with gold, would he be grateful to you, or would he rather not be angry? What if you were to see him clad in worn-out rags and stiff from cold, and you were to forget about clothing him, and instead were to set up golden columns for him, saying you were doing it in his honor? Would he not think he was being mocked and greatly insulted? Apply this also to Christ when he comes along the road as a pilgrim looking for shelter. So that we have to we have to really realize what a preferential option to the poor would make us look like, would make our church look like. 
I'll, I'll hear your St. John Christotum quote and raise you another one. If you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the door, you will not find him in the chalice. <laughs> Which is also, by the way, one of the things that has, like, that one has literally come to me so many times. So how many times do we go to church and there is someone at the door begging, right? And I can remember a time when years ago, why are these people here? I mean, they're just, you know, they're bugging me here, you know. That was Christ literally at the door begging. It has changed my mindset. You know, once you start to recognize this preferential love that we should have, as the catechism says, and, um, for the poor, it's preference. There's a, there's a word there that, that means something. It means they are preferred, not just dealt with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it's something that's often... The poor are so forgotten. They're so lonely. I mean, especially in this time of the pandemic, I've heard so many stories from um, some of our Christ in the City missionaries of how the poor in normal times have feel like they have no one to talk to. I mean, they're they're literally, you know, just alone. And there's a poverty of loneliness that's that's so real, and it can cause such severe mental problems. You can't even work when you when you have these you know, this real poverty. And this pandemic has just amplified that now because no one now wants to go up and actually even be within six feet of the poor. And it's it's really an interesting, you know, thing that happens is that once someone doesn't have status, once you don't have money, once you don't have a job, you disappear. I mean, even to the point of, even if you have a house, you can disappear in your house and no one even knows you're there. It's it's one of the things that I've noticed when once you actually meet the poor and on the first mission trip we went to in the Philippines, we, we came across this where once you actually serve the poor and actually talk to them and met them, you begin to notice them in your daily life. Um, we were walking along the street right after the mission trip. It was the day after the mission trip. We were we were walking um, back to a, a motel that we had rented. And the streets, it was a it was kind of a resort town. So the streets looked all clean and nice. And, you know, there was actually kind of gold laden, you know, columns and stuff because they wanted it to look nice. But if you turned around and looked, you could see the alleyway where the poor were sleeping. But you wouldn't have noticed that and, and, until you know that they're there. Um, and it's it's oddly enough, the preferential option for the poor is actually treated that same way in our Catholic social teaching. There is no specific section in this book, this social doctrine compendium. There is no section for the preferential option for the poor. I think that's a great analogy for how the poor don't fit. We don't even have a section that says we need to care for them. But yet it is very uh, upfront. It is one of the the cornerstones of Jesus' teachings. Um, I mean, Matthew 25, just read it. If, if you can't read the Gospels and not understand that the poor should be not just cared for, but actually, you know, loved and preferred, then we're missing the whole Christian message. Yeah, there's really nothing that's more uh, emphasized as far as, you know, our, our interaction with one another in the Gospel. And it reminds me of this story I heard, um, it was told by this priest, Father Albert. And um, he was talking about as a young seminarian he was um hurrying to good friday three three p.m service at the church and he you know he thought that if he if he really hurried he'd just have time to get there before it started 
And uh, on the sidewalk, he met this uh, you know, ragged looking man who said to him, uh, you have a quarter? I, I just need a cup of coffee. And Father Albert said, you know, he, he looked at the guy and, and the guy looked like he was probably under the influence of something. And in any case, he was in a hurry. He did have a quarter in his pocket, but he was in a hurry. And so he crossed the street and kept on going. And he'd got less than half a block when he heard a voice say to him, Albert, turn around. And he turned around and there was Jesus standing there where the poor man had been. And Jesus said to him, Albert, not even a quarter on Good Friday? And he oh said, he's carried that, you know, all his life, you know, that, that memory of that experience. And, uh, you know, that, that's the reality of the thing that we so often miss if we don't realize that we have that preferential option. Yep. And it goes, and, and honestly, a lot of what we were talking about, going back to the very beginning of this talk, a lot of the examples that we just mentioned are literally just justice. It's not even, we're not even providing charity in a lot of these cases. You know, the, yeah, the, it's not, it's not, um, it's not just uh, charity, but justice because of the next uh, principle in, in this list here of, of solidarity, which we've you know touched on a little earlier that the reason we have to have this spirit of justice, the spirit of charity, the spirit of care is because we have to have the solidarity with one another, to walk in the shoes of another. Um, to be in solidarity with another, once we do that, we realize the injustice that they're under and then are moved to rectify it. But without that solidarity, obviously none of the other principles will make a lot of sense. Um, you know, we will just ignore that. Yeah. Solidarity is really, it's um, literally stepping into another's shoes. Um, it's, it's something that should actually change us. Um, it, yes, you are, you are, it, it leads to things that help other people. It, it leads to humanitarian service. It leads to mission work. Um, but ultimately, solidarity is what's causing the conversion in us that allows us to see uh, those around us as someone who is in need. Um, also leads to gospel poverty the, or evangelical poverty, the, the desire to give up what you have so that you can live more like the poor. Um, and the ultimate example here is that, you know, Jesus himself came to live in solidarity with man. He didn't need to come down and be with us. I mean, he didn't, that was not a requirement for our salvation. And yet he did. Right. You know, we're all, the Christian is, is supposed to be all about imitating Christ. And the most fundamental thing about the incarnation is that solidarity, even to death, as as St. Paul says, even to death on a cross. He was willing to come and share simply to be in solidarity and show his love because he didn't, you know, as you, as you said, it's church teaching that he could have redeemed us any number of other ways that wouldn't have involved all that. Even just that humiliation of becoming a human being, you know, when when he's God Almighty. Um, and, and living for living for thirty years, by the way, no one knowing that he was <laughs> that he was God Almighty. Imagine, you know, like this kind of like you mentioned earlier the idea, the you know show about uh, a CEO, uh, you know, living as one of his his workers for a day or so. But imagine that kind of restraint, that kind of 
humiliation for 30 years. You know, he's just the village carpenter's son, you know, like no one's special. And, and to be willing to do that, to really share all of our experience to redeem it so that he could raise it up to a higher level. So on our own way, when we have solidarity with another, we want to raise them up, to give them that dignity that we talked about, to meet those needs, those rights that they have that we talked about earlier, to value the work they do, to value them as a person, and yeah. thus imitate Christ and show Christ to one another. Yeah, and it allows us to not only just serve them, but it also allows us to, again, going back to what we just talked about, it allows us to keep from judging them. I, I My own saying is that solidarity is the antidote to judgment. If you ever feel like you're being too judgmental or don't understand what someone's doing or why they're doing it, solidarity is the answer. Live into their life. Meet them. Um, Romans 4, 14, 13, let us no longer judge one another, but what rather resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Solidarity is the answer to this. Um, there's been so many examples of this that have come to me in, in recent, the recent year, but, um, I mean, even, I think it's kind of very, um, I want to say ironic, but I think it's actually more deeper than that it's it's been literally a a sign of god that um pope francis held the amazon synod um what is that four months before the the pandemic hit and the synod really the main point of the synod was that there are people that live in these regions of um, south america that don't see a priest for three years they may not see receive communion for three years at a time they may not receive confession for a year or two i've i've been in my, my own life i've been in situations where there's there's little towns that don't even see a priest for three months or a year there's people around the world that don't have access to daily sacraments as we do or even the weekly sacraments as we do here in the west and i think it's beautiful how god used the pandemic to really show us that we last year we had a you know what is that three three weeks or a month where sacraments were for all practical purposes shut down in the United States. Now we could complain about that and we could say, well, you know, people are just not allowing us to be, you know, practice our our rights. But we could also use that as an opportunity to live in solidarity, to say, hey, you know, this is a normal life for someone that lives in you know the jungles of the Amazon. Yeah, that's, that's really profound, actually, because I think that it, it's unfortunate many people, whether it's the sacraments in the pandemic or something else, you know, when something does go wrong, you know, like when our power goes down, the impulse is to say, you know, golly, I don't know what, what happened, you know, like so, someone someone's done something wrong or come on, get my power back. Yeah, that's the impulse is to is to blame someone. Actually, I'll put it yeah. put it clearly. <laughs> yeah, right. And whereas we could think about the people who never have any power, or you know, like when when anything when anything goes wrong in our lives, it is an opportunity for solidarity to suddenly imagine what it's like if that wrong thing just kept happening, as it does to so many many people's lives. It really seems like everything for everything goes wrong for all practical purposes. Uh, they don't have anything. 
nothing ever goes right and they have no hope that anything ever is going to go right. And to remember that, uh, whether, as you say, whether it's, you know, the sacraments or something else. Yeah. If you ever feel like, um, you're, if you ever feel like there's something that you enjoy on a daily basis that you could never live without, try living without it for a day. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful act of solidarity. Be intentional, you know, try to live without running water for a day. See what, see, you know, how would you change your life? How would you, you know, you could plan for that, but now imagine that what if you couldn't plan for it? What if your water just shut off today and you don't have it for another day or two? That's normal in many parts of the world. And, and completely accepted as a part of daily suffering for many of the poor. They don't complain about it because that to itself is a very minimal suffering for them. Um, and so that, again, is that call for uh, of gospel poverty, of living into this life of the poor, um, quoting Lumen Gentium, lest we become hindered in our pursuit of perfect charity by the use of worldly things and by an adherence to riches, which is contrary to the spirit of evangelical poverty. Um, so all of these things are, are great ways for us to sacrifice. We, we do this, you know, during Lent in little small ways, right? We, we give up meat on Fridays. We, you know, uh, but maybe try give up meat for a week. You know, most of the world, meat is a luxury. You won't have it for a year, maybe. And that's, that's if you have it on Easter as a special occasion. So it, it counters our tendency to be, to be self-righteous, to, to feel like we are doing God's will. Again, going back to that example of uh, we are perfect. No, it, it helps us to understand that the world is broken. And there are many things that are broken in this world that we can step in and help with. We can provide acts of mercy that help alleviate that suffering for the poor in little ways, right? I remember... Uh... You go building on what you said there about, you know, giving something up that you feel like you can't do without in solidarity. And you can make it concrete, too, by taking the money saved from such a thing and really giving it to the poor. Absolutely. Um, I remember in Father Dubay's book, Happy Are You Poor, he talks about how much, how many people could be fed if Americans... Uh, limited themselves to one or fewer alcoholic drinks a day. How much grain would be saved from all those alcoholic beverages? And as as he pointed out, uh, Americans would be healthier for it. Uh, people would be fed, and um, so the, these things, you know, like for them, you know, they're you know with this kind of solidarity to to really yeah walk with them try to imagine what it would be like and really then in that solidarity work to lift them up and that you know that solidarity won't be possible if we don't recognize that every human life uh, has dignity and that's another of the key principles uh the right to life and the dignity of every human person from conception to natural death and that, of course, in, in another sense, also helps to underpin all these other principles in, in the same way that they all work together. Because if, if there's some human beings who don't have dignity, then we don't need to be in solidarity with them. We don't need to uh, serve them. We don't need to look out for their rights. Uh, and we won't. If, if we don't recognize that dignity, we won't uh, recognize any of these other principles. And it's not, and it's not just a recognition of life and dignity 
but it's also a recognition of their life and dignity as it is today, not of something that you want them to be. There's, there's a, there's that goes back to again that solidarity. You know, um, we have to recognize that all life is important. All life is sacred. I, I pause there. Very clear. All life. There, that's an important concept that is hard to get around when you literally say all life. Um, so there's there's been no shortage of teaching on, about birth control, abortion in the past year, 50 years since um, uh, Humane Vitae. Um, and yet Catholics, if you look at the statistics, Catholics are not particularly different from non-Catholics when it comes to the use of birth control and abortion. Why is this? I mean, this is something that's hammered on. I mean, I could go and pull up my church bulletin today and see a teaching about abortion or from the pro-life committee or something about birth control. And yet Catholics don't really differ that much from the world in their use. Why, Why is this? It, that's a very good question. And I think part of the answer has to be that these things are not like, if they're just seen as, you know, individual issues, it might be rather puzzling, but they're deeply connected to our outlook on others, on our way of life. Uh, the fact that we don't respect the dignity of others, especially the weak. And it's really, it would be really odd if we ended up respecting the rights and dignity of uh, a, a weak, a very weak set of human beings, the unborn, while at the same time, uh, you know, dismissing the dignity and rights of other weak classes of human beings, of those who uh, work in the sweatshops or anywhere else, because we, our culture promotes a mentality of seeing others as as useful to me. Um, Mm -hmm. In seeing them only as they relate to my plans, my dreams, my desires. And so therefore, obviously, in this culture, this culture of death, uh, you know, if the unborn are in the way, they'll be disposed of, of course, uh, that you won't be open to new life if it might interfere with your plans. That's just part and parcel of the great indifference, the great rejection of solidarity that comes along with our materialistic culture. Yeah. Or I'll flip it on the other side. Maybe for many, it's easy to speak up against abortion because it's not a factor in their life, right? It's easy to be socially minded, to speak for social justice if it's an issue that doesn't affect me. And I don't want to just point out abortion for this. There's many things that this can play into, right? It's it's easy to speak against war. It's easy to speak against environmental degradation. It's easy to to speak up for the refugees if it doesn't affect me. Yeah, in short, it's just easy to talk. You know, yeah. <laughs> talk is really cheap. Easy to speak about about anything like we're doing here. You know, um, and and yes, like what is it that we're called to do? And that's when that's when it becomes difficult. So it's easy to, you know, like we've got this culture where the various social teachings, you know, like the, the life issues are a good example of this. The various social teachings have become 
disconnected from one another and weaponized against one another. Yeah. And that's partly because that makes it easy then to use them as something to whack somebody else over the head with, you know, like each of us can take some principle that for whatever reason, we don't have a problem with following. And then we can whack someone else over the head who isn't following it. And of course, like we need to, you know, we need to exercise a prophetic role and challenge the evil that's in the world. For instance, a challenge, challenging the evil of legalized abortion. But we can only take on that prophetic role if we're willing to first be prophets in our own hearts and call out the evil that's hiding there because in every one of every one of us is in some way going against these teachings on social justice. <clears throat> None of us can claim to be perfect in how we live them out, but that's unpleasant. So if we just take one or two of them, ignore the rest, we can then, you know, like we can say, well, like this one, I have no problem with this one. I do well, and then make that the touchstone, whether it is abortion or whether it's protecting the environment or welcoming the stranger or what have you. That kind of self-righteousness has no place in the Christian life. You know, one of the things that Jesus spoke most heavily against and, and with the strongest language was this, was self-righteousness. It was, if you want to put this into a perspective of, of the, the Gospels, read Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Most of the things that he complained about were these exact issues. You put these things, these burdens on people when you yourself are dirty on the inside, right? I mean, <laughs> it's a great example here. And, and what it's pointing to is that there's inherent sin here that we all suffer from. We all suffer from pride. We all suffer from greed. We all suffer from selfishness, vanity, vainglory, all of these sins that they're inherent to our nature as broken human beings. And unless we go after those sins, then we're going to we're going to use the good for evil. We're going to try that. And that's that's exactly what, you know, these people did, you know, 2000 years ago. They tried to use the good laws that God had given them to keep them as a separate people, as a as a holy people. They're going to use them, as you said, as as clubs to beat over people's heads and not use it to change themselves. And that's where all Catholic social teaching comes into. It should be an internal conversion. It should be something that not we yell at people about, not that we judge and condemn people. It should always be something that converts us. And from that conversion comes the fruit of social justice. It can't be a thing that we burden others with, you know, to, to go back to one of the one of the accusations of Christ against the Pharisees was that they bound up burdens for others so that it has to be a burden that we each care, that we carry one another's burdens in this kind of solidarity and this work for universal justice. If it's becoming a way that we burden others. So in our fight against abortion, we true, we have to work against legalized abortion murder can't ever be legal no matter who it's directed against but we have to make sure that the burden of care for the unborn does not fall disproportionately on the poor and on the weak on those who can't afford to care for children we have to realize that we have to really carry that burden instead of merely and only aiming at laws that will put the burden 
on others, on those that we feel we have no responsibility for. I know we're jumping forward here a little bit, but that's actually a definition of the common universal common good. <laughs> it's right. another uh, principle of Catholic social teaching that says that, you know, those are things that we must share the burden. The burden of life is a common good for all humanity. And that's part of our call as Christians to live in community. This is exactly what, you know, what our project is about is to live in community and it's a call to family participation in community and family life. Um, this is a principle that often we, uh, you'll see it shortened to marriage and family life, but it goes well beyond familial matter. It includes basically the universal common good. It, it includes that we should be giving the poor what is theirs, not ours. St. Gregory, the great there. We're paying a debt of justice by giving them what is theirs, right? Um, and so there's a lot of common good examples here. There's a lot of, um, and, and it's, I talked about basic education, you know, that a lot of these are rights, right? But then it also goes into some things that are a little more, less hard, less easy to quantify. Civility, uh, civility is, is something that, you know, is a common good. And we think of that as well, you know, that seems silly, but, I've literally been to some parts of the world where you have to have security guards in a McDonald's. That's not a common good in some places of the world. It can even go to simple things. Uh, I have a sidewalk in front of my house. That may seem like a simple thing, but there are some areas of the world where it is legal to drive on the sidewalks. It's not always a given. Pope Francis begins Laudato Si, with this call to the universal common good by pointing out things that like healthy air, health care, healthy water, clean water that many in the world do not have. These are common goods that it's, it's part of our participation in community life that we should protect, not for ourselves. We should protect it for others. And it usually means giving up something of ourselves, going back to that sacrificial nature of a Christian again. And that's probably a good place to close this episode because it will lead well into the next uh, conversation on Laudato Si, where we get into the, the final pillar of Catholic social teaching, care for creation. So in our, in our next episode, we will build on uh, this, this conversation we've just had um, to show how these themes are developed in Laudato Si and how they relate to that care for creation and that universal common good which is our common home, our environment. And uh, as a practical suggestion, if you're looking for ways to put some of these principles into practice on our website, there are is a 101 ways to change your life uh, list, which gives some practical suggestions. And also I will be uh, posting along with this episode for our listeners, uh, a list of the references and quotes that we've referred to so that you can see them in their uh, proper context. So thanks so much, Jason, for uh, joining me today and having this discussion. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks again. And to all our listeners, uh, wait for our next episode in two weeks time.